Well, this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. You can find our passage on page 873 in the Pew Bible. And I'll bring the text up on the screen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and, and, and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Last year, my oldest son studied uh, logical fallacies. And one of those fallacies is what's called the loaded question. You're like, I know what that is. (laughs) I've gotten those before. And that's basically a question that has a bunch of other arguments or a bunch of other assertions behind the question that if you just directly answer the question, you're essentially already conceding the point. You're conceding the argument. For instance, if someone comes to you and says, well, you know, since all conservative Christians are just awful bigots, why do you go to that you know, conservative Christian church of yours? You're like, well, well wait a minute. Wait, I can't even answer that question because I'm not going to grant your premise. You've loaded that thing up uh, with a whole lot of stuff that I am not going to agree to. Now, we see these types of questions everywhere, even in the church. Back in 2014, there was a uh, conference, in, uh, and I can't remember, I've talked about this recently, but uh, it was a conference, uh, it was the Ligonier National Conference, and somebody wrote in a question uh, to R.C. Sproul, uh, and the question was, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath so severe and long-lasting? Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath so severe and long-lasting? The response that R.C. gave was what I would uh, summarize as fiery, uh, a bit angry, actually, because he, um, the actual quote was, what's wrong with you people, (laughs) was was the quote that he gave. Uh, I don't know if it was the end of a long day for him, but he was, uh, but what he said was, is that, The question revealed a profound ignorance from Christians about who God is and who we are. And there is a fundamental problem there. Because as fallen humanity, we are prone by our very fallen nature 
to view ourselves to be better than we are and God to be less than he is. This is particularly revealed when we assume certain rights and privileges that we are owed by God. And if that's someone's position that God owes me something, well, then it shouldn't be that surprising if they then reject the gospel and the faith altogether. Why do you need the good news of mercy for sinners if we're really not that bad? I mean, if that's the case, and we're really not that bad, we just live in this you know, messed up world, well then, really, the problem is the management, right? God needs to step it up a bit. And then it would, things would be a lot better. The problem's not me, the problem is this messed up world. And we're starting here today, because this text is all about a loaded question that Jesus receives, and the challenging response that he returns to his audience, even to us. So first, let's take a look at the loaded question that Jesus receives in verses 22 to 23. So Jesus, as Luke says, is going through the towns and villages and he's teaching and he's journeying. And along the way, someone just kind of throws out the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, we don't know anything about the person who asked it. It literally just says somebody asked. Right? We don't know their name. We don't know uh, what their situation is. Um, Now, you know, did they think they were part of that few who would be saved and thus were trying to, you know, just kind of confirm their status? Did they think they were not part of the few and they were trying to alleviate their fears? But at the heart of this question is another question that is one that many wrestle with even today, which is how gracious is God? How gracious is God? Now, Jesus' audience, we must recall, was primarily Jewish. He did interact with Gentiles on a very limited basis, but primarily he taught and preached to Jews even when he was out in the streets. And the common belief of that day was that nearly all Jews uh, would be delivered without, with, with only exceptions of rank heretics and, and awful, awful sinners like very few people that were, that were Israelites or Jewish would be lost uh, when the deliverance came through the Messiah. Yet, uh, for, for all that, uh, debates about who was in and who was out uh, abounded at the time. There were those who strictly followed the law uh, under the Pharisees as one camp. Uh, there were, of course, the Sadducees who only agreed that the first five books of the Torah or the first five books of our Old Testament were actually the uh, Scripture and thus binding. Uh, and so they had a more broader definition. Uh, the Sadducees were not as uh, they did not hold as strictly uh, to the laws requiring to marry only Israelites or Jewish people, and so they had a they had a broader definition of who got to be in and out when it came to the people of God. Uh, and 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 look, there's even no shortage of people today who, when talking about God's grace and who are God's people. Uh, who gets who gets saved? Who gets you know gets God's grace in the end? That will say things like, "Well, you know, if God is really gracious, well, then he could he could just forgive forgive everybody. Well, if God is is really good, well, then nothing really bad would happen. If God was really loving, then he certainly wouldn't send anyone to hell. That's not a loving thing to do. 
and even for those who believe not even Christianity, but just generally in some deity uh, and, and the afterlife, they assume that a basically morally decent person would be approved for entry into the afterlife of whatever that may be. And of course, the baseline for a basically morally decent person is going to be this guy, right? It's going to be me, right? It's going to be, if that's my position, I'm always the default of that morality. But this actually reveals nothing about God. It only reveals about us and the human condition. And that, and the reality that even in the church, we need to recover the wonder of God's grace. Now, in order to do that, to in order to recover the wonder of grace, we have to clarify our understanding of fallen humanity. That we are made, each one of us, in the image of God. That by our very design and creation, you are imbued with dignity and value. Your very existence is marked by the care, creativity, and wonder of the God who made you and brought you into being and has sustained you up to this very moment. Yet... For all of that, we must understand that we are desperately fallen and corrupt. Conceived in sin because of Adam. Corrupt from our very birth. This is not to say that we are as bad as we could be, but that every aspect of our being is polluted and corrupted by sin. When uh, Going back to that... It, that uh, um, conference when Sproul was asked that question about the severity of God's wrath, he, he, he went back to the garden. He went back to the garden. He walked everyone through how God had made man and woman, how He had given them everything, and, and, and withheld only one single tree for Himself as a sign of His authority as the one who determines good and evil in creation. And what is amazing about that is that So many of us hear that and so many people hear that and the response is, well, he screwed up, didn't he? Because he kept that one tree. It's his fault. Why did he have to have that one tree all to himself? Why did he even do it there? Why did he he put it there? I mean, Adam and Eve only had every other single tree in the entire world. Right, and when but when they sinned, God didn't kill them, as He had every right to do, as He had warned them in advance that He would do. He did curse them; He cursed creation. Pain comes in now in labor and work and childbearing. Their physical life now for them and their descendants does end in death. But He also covered their shame. He covered them literally with clothing that He made from animal skins. He covenanted with them a promise that one day He would undo the the sin and, and, and the curse and death that they had brought into the world as a consequence of their evil. And so the the wonder the wonder of grace is not in solving 
the riddle of why God punished Adam and Eve and their descendants, but rather asking why did he let them live? Why did he promise to send his own son to die for the sins of his people? And so the wonder of grace, even as Jesus himself has taught, the wonder of grace is not why are so few saved, but why are any saved at all? At the heart of it, many people believe that they deserve God's mercy, that they have a right to God's mercy. But this is always, of course, mediated by our own view of morality, our own view of our ethics. Because because if we become the standard and we say, well, of course, someone like me should be saved. And you're like, okay, well, what about that guy? Should he be saved? They say, well, yeah, sure, why not? What about this person who murdered somebody? Well, maybe, uh, well, I don't know. Let me, see. Let me hear about the conditions and why did they do it and what were the circumstances and what about the person that's, that broke in and stole all this stuff? Well, you know, and they start going, going through, okay, well, what about uh, the despots and and and. and, and uh, what about the killers? What about the human traffickers? What about all these different people? And they go, oh, well, okay, well, that guy does it. That guy. It's like all of a sudden we're in a place where we're going, they deserve it and they don't. That is a very dangerous place to be. You don't want that person to have power that thinks they have the right to choose who lives and who dies. Who gets to decide who gets mercy and who doesn't? Is it you? Is it me? Is it society? If we're struggling to see how God is gracious, there's probably a disconnect with our understanding of the sinfulness of man. Because the reality is none of us deserve it. None of us deserve to be saved. And so Jesus gives an answer to the question that does answer the question indirectly, but challenges all who hear him, even us here today. And so we have heard the loaded question. We've kind of considered it uh, kind of at the, at the outset. And now let's consider the challenging answer that Jesus returns. Challenging answer that Jesus returns in verses 24 through 30. And his answer is very simple. He says, look, he says, we ought to be uh, those who strive to enter through the narrow door. In verse 24. You're like, okay, well, again, Jesus, Jesus, you're doing that thing where you answer a question without really being clear. What's a, what's a narrow door? And it, and it seems like Jesus may be saying uh, that salvation, I mean, it's a narrow door. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's, it, it's small. It's, it's hard to, you know, hard to find. So, is he, so it's, you know, it sounds like he might be saying that, that salvation is hard to find and hard to reach. And in fact, that's exactly what he's saying. Salvation is hard to find and hard to reach. But Jesus is not preaching salvation by works here. Rather, Christ himself, as, we, as is made clear in other passages, he himself is the door to salvation by faith alone. He says, I am the door. He says, I am the gate. I am, like, he is the entryway. There is no other name in, under, in heaven by which man can be saved. 
Yet there is an entire world that is corrupted by sin. Even our own flesh working against us, seeking to prevent us from entering that door. The door itself is narrow, as one pastor said many years ago, because the narrow door lets no self-righteousness, no worldly glories, no dignities through it. To enter the door of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ requires repentance and humility. No one can go through that door, uh, that door with their head held high. It is coming to the end of ourselves that we may see our need of a Savior and find Him in Jesus. And then even as believers, we do, Jesus Himself says, we do not enter the kingdom without enduring, experiencing great tribulation, pain, sorrow, and affliction. And that word striving is a great word to describe the Christian life. Indeed, like Paul, we are striving with all His energy that so powerfully works within us. It's in, and it's instructive here that Jesus, when asked... When asked this question, you know, will those who were were saved be few? He doesn't talk about predestination or election, a doctrine that we believe in. That's not where he goes. We believe that God in His holy will, His holy secret, hidden will, known only unto Himself, has ordained some to everlasting life. But the means by which that we take hold of that life, that He has planned for us, that He has willed for us to take, is not by realizing or believing in God's hidden plan for the church, but in receiving the revelation of grace in Jesus Christ, in His cross and His resurrection. You know, I don't grow a plant in my flower bed by simply confirming the reality of root systems and how they operate by increasing my knowledge on YouTube of how to grow things really well. That's great, But you have to actually put the plant in the soil. You have to actually water it appropriately. You need to add particular nutrients depending on your soil. Like there's actually there's actually means by which you actually grow a plant. And likewise, God has provided means by which He executes His plan, and that is the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The best way I've always heard it kind of summarized is paraphrasing uh, Charles Spurgeon, who basically just said, if you want to know if you're predestined or elect, trust in Jesus and follow Him the rest of your life. Because guess what? That's what the elect do. Now, sometimes they go, they go, they go, sometimes even God's people can go a little crazy. And they can leave the church for a time, they come back, like stuff like that. But they do come back. They do follow the Lord. They do repent. They do turn. And they follow Christ. And so Jesus says, if you want to be saved, then go for the narrow door. If you're asking today, how can I be saved? There is your answer. Go for the narrow door. Go for Jesus. Turn from sin. Trust in Christ to save you and follow Him the rest of your life. But Jesus needs to clarify this a bit more. So, And in doing so, He presses us because we need to apparently reconsider some of our assumptions in verses 25 to 27. And we need to do this because our eternal destiny is at stake here. 
And and no one wants to be the one that Jesus describes here as the the one banging on 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 the door, the locked door of the house that the master refuses to let in. But what is the reason for not letting them in? He says, I don't know where you come from. I don't know who you are. But they reveal that they are those who were near Jesus physically. They ate and drank in His presence. They were were there when He taught in their towns. But He says, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Never heard of you. He says, I do know one thing about you. You're workers of evil and you need to depart from my presence. And so what this tells us here is that we are not talking about genuine Christians who are struggling against, you know, and fighting against the flesh and sin or the consequences of their sin as they live lives of repentance and faith by the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. We're talking about people who come near Jesus but never know Him. They go to church from time to time or regularly. They have a Bible, maybe several in their house. They may even crack it open once in a while. They come from a Christian family. They're a fairly moral person. But they've, they've never trusted in Jesus Christ. They don't trust in Jesus to save them from their sin. They come near Jesus but they've never known Him. They've never trusted Him. They've never entered by the narrow door. They don't repent of their sin. And I will tell you that the longer I'm in pastoral ministry, this is a key one. Okay? I don't don't look for perfection in any of God's people, but I do look for repentance. And so if someone is in gross immorality... Sin, and they are a member of a church or they're professing to be a Christian, but there is no repentance in their life. That is the biggest, like, that's red flag, sirens going off. It doesn't mean they're not a believer, but it does mean unless they repent, unless they turn, then it's possible they may not be. And so, this, and so, this is, and so, and so repentance is key. For the Christian life. So Martin Luther said the Christian life is one of repentance and faith on a daily basis. Jesus is talking about those who are indifferent to the gospel. Those who want to be Christian but reject needing the mercy of God. These are people who are familiar with the church. Familiar with Jesus. Familiar with Christianity. But again do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so this is hard to this is a hard message in one sense because as a church we welcome seekers on Sunday mornings. We want people who are seeking the truth, maybe they're not quite there, they're wrestling with the claims of Christianity and they're just not sure about Jesus. We want them to come in. This is not a rejection of that person. We want them to come in. We want them to wrestle with those things, but we need to but we need to make a distinction here. There is a distinction to be made between those who are seeking and those who are striving, as Jesus says. Those who are seeking are looking for something, whereas those who are striving have already found it. Seeking has faith in Jesus as a possible option. Striving proceeds from faith 
in Jesus Christ. It is good to seek the truth, to examine the truth claims of Christianity, but seeking will not save you. If someone says, well, I'm just a seeker of truth, that will not save them unless they know Jesus. It's good to come to church. It's good to read your Bible. It's good to obey the Word of God. But these things do not save. These are not the narrow door. They may be means by which we come to the narrow door, but they are not the narrow door. It is good to be a moral person, but it will not save you. We must beware trying to reach heaven on a bridge of shadows. That's what one author said hundreds of years ago. We must beware trying to reach heaven on a bridge of shadows. Have you repented of your sin? Acknowledge God's righteous wrath against you in the salvation that He grants you by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that He was raised from the dead to be your Lord, your Savior? Not generally, but personally for you. There is no other door to salvation. All other paths lead to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place of eternal grief and rage against God. We call it hell. But for those who trust in Jesus, we can turn our eyes not only to the need to trust in Christ to continue to walk by faith, but also, once we do that, we can begin to see the beauty of the kingdom of God. Once we have embraced the, the, the reality of, of, of we've recovered the wonder of grace. And in and the beauty of the kingdom of God, we see in verses 28 to 30, because Jesus' answer to the question, that he, the, the answer that he gives is a bit counterintuitive because he implicitly kind of says, yes. Right? He says, many will try to enter, but they won't make it. Why? Because they're not actually entering by the narrow door. They're trying to enter by the trappings of religion. They're trying to enter by their works, by their moral good. They're trying to enter by anything but faith in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, the implicit answer is, yeah, there, there's gonna, there, there'll be few by comparison. Yet, he says, in this picture in verses 28 to 30, those who are saved will be many. They will come from great distances and there will be a great reversal of the sinful order as people, as the people of God all share in a great privilege in the kingdom. And so there's this picture of the kingdom of God here where people are coming from all directions, from, from north and south and east and west. And Jesus, and Jesus here is indicating not only the, the events that occurred, particularly in like Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost, but the gospel going out to the nations and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. And, there, and, so, and so in that, there's this great reversal that he, you know, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. This great reversal occurs that, as, that, that people don't expect. That those who are in, in, in the closest physical proximity to salvation, they're the people who are the closest physically to Jesus, who is the Messiah, many of them will be cut off and cast out 
because they do not know Him. They do not trust Him. Yet those who are far off will be brought in and brought near. And always remember that we are the far off. Where we live was not even on the map at the time. They didn't even know this part of the world existed. All right, we are on the farthest reaches, and from the biblical, from the biblical worldview, we are part of those coming in from the north and the south and the east and the west, brought into the kingdom of God. And so, and so, the, as as Peter says in First Peter chapter one verses eight and nine, he says, "Those though you have not seen him, you love him." And though you do not see Him, uh, who uh, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's also a reversal, of, uh, essentially kind of a reversal of fortunes, that those who have suffered and been made low in this earthly life, those who were despised and afflicted with many trials, shall receive their reward. From their heavenly Father. They shall be exalted. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. But all will share in one glorious privilege. Table fellowship with God. It is not a misprint to say when Jesus says they will recline at table. You'd be like, don't you mean the table? Jesus, let's be proper. Right? No, recline at table is a specific, is a specific picture of intimacy. And relationship. You only recline at table with, uh, with those you are close with. That you've been invited into. And he says we will recline at table with one another. And even with God. And Revelation tells us that we will see God face to face. Living in his glorious immediate presence with joy. And so Jesus doesn't answer the question here in order to terrify us. But rather, he, does, he answers the question to comfort us and to direct us in the way that we should go. If you've never repented of your sin and received Jesus to be your Savior, do so today. Do not delay. Remember, the problem that Jesus presents is not how narrow the door is, but the time will come when there will, it, the, it will be barred shut and the opportunity will be gone. The problem then is not the size of the door, but delaying, waiting, deceiving ourselves by the trappings of religion and morality that we don't even need the door, that there's another way in. And for those Christians who have lost their way, who have become distracted and dulled by the comforts and the lusts of the flesh and the world, who have been sidetracked through suffering and affliction, who have forgotten about God in their prosperity, let us all... Set our eyes on Christ and strive by faith and the grace of the Spirit in this life as long as it is called today, encouraging one another to love and good deeds. For it is God who works in us, as the Apostle says, to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in Jesus we have entry into salvation. And Lord, we do confess freely that there are often times, even this week, even today, 
or we have taken our eyes off Jesus. Where we have sought to not strive, but to sit back and relax. Lord, but You call us to a life of striving. A life of struggle. Struggle against the flesh. Struggle against the world. Struggle against the devil. And so, Father, we pray that we would strive. That we would trust in Jesus Christ, who is our only hope, our only Savior, to save us from our sins. That we would continue to trust in Jesus day after day to uphold us and strengthen us as we fight against temptation. As we deal with the hardships and afflictions that have been thrust upon us in our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us the strength to endure. And that we would indeed continue to set our eyes on Christ. Eyes of faith. Until we see Him. Personally. Face to face. In the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.